Welcome to the Occult London podcast. This is a new podcast dedicated to exploring magic, mysticism, the Kabbalah, as well as other topics. If you like the podcast, please write a review and rate us on iTunes as it will really help us to get this message out there. Also, be sure to visit our website at occultlondon.co.uk where you can subscribe to the show. If anyone has any questions for me, then I'd love to hear from them. So please reach out via Facebook or on email as I'd love to answer any questions you may have. You can find my Facebook on the show notes or alternatively email me at occultlondonpodcast at gmail.com. hope you enjoy it. In this episode, we will be continuing our discussion on the Tetragrammaton and some of the history behind this sacred word. Before we begin, I'd also like to say that I'm not a biblical scholar, I'm not pretending to be, and this is by no means a fully comprehensive history of the name from a biblical history standpoint. There are far more qualified people out there to do that, so these are my own opinions, my research, my own thoughts. This is a discussion of some of the key things the ideas, the themes relating to the history of the Tetragrammaton that I found interesting, and I hope you will do too. As we discussed in our previous introductory episode, the holy and sacred name appears in the books of the Torah and the rest of the Hebrew Bible many times in different forms, as well as in other forms in Hebrew, Greek, Aramaic and Phoenician, as well as having references in the Dead Sea Scrolls, and also the Greek magical papyri. We will not be covering all of its ancient history in this episode. However, what I wanted to do was to talk a bit about some of the themes of the name, as it will really help us to understand its spiritual significance and importance later on. As we already saw in our introduction, the word tetragrammaton is derived from the Greek words tetra, which means four, and grammar, which means letter. And this word was used by the early Jewish authors writing in the Greek language to signify the most sacred and powerful name of God, composed of four Hebrew letters that were revealed to Moses. This word is Yahweh or Yehovah, and there are several different stories regarding how this was really revealed to mankind. The Bible presents several different stories regarding the revelation of the name. So one of the famous ones is Moses and the burning bush in Exodus 3, where God makes it really clear that Moses is the first to hear the name. And I quote, Now Moses kept the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, And he led the flock to the backside of the desert and came to the mountain of God, even to Horeb. And the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. And he looked and behold, the bush burned with fire and the bush was not consumed. And Moses said, I will now turn aside and see this great sight why the bush is not burnt. And when the Lord saw that, he turned aside to see. God called unto him out of the midst of the bush and said, Moses, 
Moses. And he said, Here am I. And he said, Draw not nigh hither, put off thy shoes from thy feet, for the place whereon thy standest is holy ground. Moreover he said, I am the God of thy father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. If we look at that particular sentence, it's interesting because there's three different names of God being used. You've obviously got Elohim, which is God. You've got Jehovah, the Lord, and then there's also El Shaddai, which is God Almighty. I did some research on this, and El Shaddai is actually used around 30 times in the Bible. Um, Elohim is used thousands of times, but Jehovah is used more than any other name. It's almost 7,000. There's also other sources in the book of Genesis that suggest that the God, the name of God was known from earlier times than Moses. So, for example, Genesis 4.26 And to Seth, to him also there was born a son, and he called his name Enos. Then began men to call upon the name of the Lord. Also, Abraham is meant to call upon the name of the Lord at Bethel in Genesis 12.8, which is technically 400 years before Moses. From there he went on towards the hills east of Bethel and pitched his tent, with Bethel on the west and Ael on the east. There he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. This has been pointed out by some scholars that these could be anachronistic though, so later editions rather than being, you know, historical fact. In addition to those sources from some of the sacred texts, there's also other ideas where the name might have originated. So some sources also suggest that the name of Jehovah or the the Tetragrammaton may have originated in the desert tribes. So the Bible indicates that early Israelites identified Yahweh with the older god El, who was worshipped in the Canaanite region and was also the father of the Canaanite god Baal, and also the husband of the mother goddess Asherah. And there's an interesting story about this, um, talking about Abraham meeting with the priest Melchizedek, that kind of connects up these two different elements. And I quote, Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High, El Elyon, and he blessed Abraham, saying, Blessed be Abraham by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who delivered your enemies into your hands. Then Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. That's Genesis fourteen eighteen. It's interesting from that passage above that the name of the deity to whom Abraham makes offerings to is called El Elyon, which is very similar to the the word El. El is one of the main gods in the Canaanite pantheon. 
in the second millennium BCE and was also known as the supreme god of the Canaanites, being the father of gods and men, but also the creator deity. He's sometimes depicted as a bull. Um, He's also known for his kind of power, his strength, his wisdom, so everything you kind of imagine that goes with a bull. Um, Later on, worship of Baal is meant to have sort of um, taken over from that, and Baal was actually meant to have been El's son and is a sort of a fertility god, really, um, but also worshipped as a storm god. And Baal worship tends to become more and more popular as people tend to move more towards the urban areas rather than the countryside. And some scholars say that it could have been likely that the Israelites would be more closely associated with the countryside areas. The idea that this word for Yahweh originated in the desert with the Canaanite tribes also plays a part in another theory that the name originated with a people who were known as the Shasu, who were Canaanite cattle nomads from the southern Transjordan and Levant, and who were described as enemies of Egypt. This theory is backed up by an inscription at Karnak from the rule of Pharaoh Amenhotep that refers to the Shasu of YHW. There may perhaps be, some scholars have said this may perhaps be evidence of the god being worshipped previously and then really later migrating north into the lands of Canaan in the 13th century BCE in Samaria and then the Judean hills. And this is something that the scholar Michael Astor um, talks about when he says the following, and I quote, Hieroglyphic rendering corresponds very precisely to the Hebrew tetragrammaton Yehovah or Yahweh and antedates the hitherto oldest occurrence of that divine name on the Moabite stone by over 100 years. 500 years, sorry. The Moabite stone that he's talking about is also known as the Mesha Steli, um, and this was found in a place called Dinan, which is the ancient Dibon capital of Moad. It was found in 1868, and it contains a really interesting ancient inscription by Mesha, who was king of Moab during the late 9th century BCE. Elements of it match events in the Hebrew Bible, and it's one of the kind of earliest recorded mentions of this name of God as the personal name of God revealed to Moses. There's also been other variants around this time, such as pottery shards found at Kuntalat Jarud, with inscriptions that mention um, the name of God, or Yahweh of Samaria, and his ashram and also other inscriptions in tombs as well. Another theory is that the this kind of origins of this word, or this name, Yahweh, was originally a deity of the Midianites and other desert tribes, and that the Israelites may not have been worshippers of this god before the coming of Moses. This is obviously just a theory. The name of God 
is revealed to Moses at Mount Horeb, which is a mountain south of Canaan, where the forefathers of the Israelites were meant to have roamed. <clears throat> Mount Horeb is the <coughs> Mount Horeb is the mountain at which the book of Deuteronomy in the Bible states that the Ten Commandments were given to Moses by Yahweh and it's described in two places the book of Exodus 3.1 and the books of Kings 19.8 as the mountain of God uh, the mountain is also called the mountain of um, Jehovah long after the Israeli settlements in Canine the area around this mountain was regarded as being sacred to Yahweh and Moses is also being clearly connected to the tribes in that area for example in Deuteronomy 33.2 and Kings 19.8 and also Judges 5.4 and I quote Lord when thou wentest out of Seir when thou marchest out of the field of Edom the earth trembled and the heavens dropped the clouds also dropped water the mountains melted from before the Lord, even that Sinai from before the Lord God of Israel. And also Kings 19.8. And he arose and did eat and drink and went in the strength of that meat forty days and forty nights unto Horeb, the Mount of God. One um, story also talks about how Moses' wife Zipporah was a daughter of Jethro, who was a priest of the Midian tribes. This is mentioned in Exodus 18. So when Moses leads the Israelites to the mountain after their escape from Egypt, the tribal priest Jethro is meant to have appeared and met with Moses at the sacred mountain. And after being told all that happened to Moses, he is meant to have said... Jethro rejoiced for all the goods which the Lord had done for Israel, whom he had delivered out of the hand of the Egyptians. And Jethro said, Blessed be the Lord who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians, and out of the hand of the Pharaoh, and who has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all the gods, for in the very thing in which they behaved proudly, he was above them. Then Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, took a burnt offering and other sacrifices to offer to God. So that quote, uh, talking about Jethro and Moses, it's been interpreted as being possibly evidence that the, the local tribes in the Sinai may have been worshippers of Yahweh before the time of Moses it's a theory though so I'm just kind of sharing these ideas in addition to the above theory there's also been attempts to link the god with the Semitic god Yah to Babylonia um, there's a famous Assyriologist called Friedrich Delitzsch um, who believed the name derived from an Akkadian god known as La, which was later changed into Yor, and so on into the into the formula of the Tetragrammaton that you see today. 
There's also been attempts to link the name with ancient Egypt, and this is something that um, Freud actually talks about, which is quite unusual, in his book Moses and Monotheism. And he talks about that Moses was brought up in an Egyptian household and adopted the the one god idea from Akhenaten. And he also talks about similar sounds between the word Aten and Adonai. However, um, yeah, it seems a little bit tenuous, to be honest. Um, but, you know, it's another theory, so, you know, why not? Make up your own minds about that. One thing that we do notice about the character of the early god is he's often portrayed as um, quite sort of warlike, really. So not, not the kind of nice, gentle god that you've, you encounter later on in some of these texts. And... Um, yeah, he's very much this. He kind of cares for he cares for humanity. Um, he has this aspects of wisdom, righteousness, um, kindness, and justice. But at the same time, there's this kind of intense jealousy um, that you see in some of these early texts, um, and you know this kind of very kind of very sort of punishing aspects. Um, to those who betray him. Um, so, you know, something that is sort of fades away later on or it, it kind of goes more into the background. A good example of this character is in Exodus 34 where God appears to Moses to receive the Ten Commandments. I quote, Then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name, the Lord." And he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, Yehovah, Yehovah, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the father to the third and fourth generation. It's from Exodus 34, 6. Um, and sometimes he, this God is also depicted as being very vengeful and warlike. Um, so similar to the sort of more Greek gods. So you see in Psalm 18. The earth trembled and quaked and the foundations of the mountains shook. They trembled because he was angry. Smoke rose from his nostrils, consuming fire came from his mouth, burning coals blazed out of it. He parted the heavens and came down. Dark gods were under his feet. He mounted the cherubim and flew. He soared on the wings of the wind. He made darkness his covering. His canopy around him. The dark rain clouds of the sky... Out of the brightness of his presence, clouds advance with hailstones and bolts of lightning. God thundered from heaven. The voice of the Most High resounded. He shot his arrows and scattered the enemies. Great bolts of lightning and rooted them. And that's from Psalm 18.7. This association with thunder, with fire, with lightning are very frequent in these early texts and some scholars have also suggested that some of these sort of primitive aspects of this god are similar to the 
similar to some of the, the hymns and inscriptions that you see devoted to the Canaanite god Baal. And this may be due to, it's been argued that this may be due to there was a bit of sort of intermixing of different cultures in that region. We will be continuing this discussion in the next episode, so that's all we've got time for this week. Um, so we're continuing this sort of potted history of the Tetragrammaton and the orange of it in the next episode. Hope you've enjoyed it, and thanks very much for joining us this week on the Occult London podcast. Thank you.